It's kind of crazy to think that as recently as 40 years ago, if you wanted to make beer in your home, you'd have to break the law. Thankfully, in 1978, it became legal on the federal level for people to homebrew, but unfortunately, this didn't include everyone as certain states continued to restrict this natural right. But this all ended in 2013 when the last two holdouts Mississippi and Alabama passed laws making it okay for people to make beer at home. For the first time since Prohibition, it was legal to homebrew in all 50 of the United States. This was due in large part to the dedication and hard work of the American Homebrewers Association. In addition to continuing the fight for our right to brew, they're committed to growing the hobby by coordinating events such as Big Brew for National Homebrew Day and HomebrewCon. We're proud to say that the Brewlosophy Podcast is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association and encourage all of our listeners to support the organization that has done so much for this hobby by becoming a member today. Hey everybody, you're listening to the Brewlosophy Podcast, and this is our 50th episode, which means it's time for another Brew and A. Joining me to answer your questions is Brewlosophy contributor Brian Hall from all the way up in Anchorage, Alaska. Seems like just yesterday we were starting this thing, Brian, and here we are at episode number 50. My, how the time flies. And you know what's great about these decahedral or what it's every 10th episode you know it's the best thing about every 10th episode what's that is that we get to do q a which is where we get to interact with our listeners which is one of the greatest things about this whole podcast is just being able to interact and get to know so many new people couldn't agree more one of the greatest things about this hobby about uh, what we've been able to do with brewlosophy is all the rad people we get to interact with and i know that, uh, people out there have, have been submitting questions for a while we've got a very very long list if we don't get to your question in this episode don't you worry. Every 10th episode, we're going to do these things, and uh, we will eventually get to your question. So, uh, well, we're in the thick of summer here in California, and I love it. Crisp, cool, loggers by the pool, good friends. You just can't beat it. And uh, it seems to also be the beer event season, and Brewlosophy is going to be getting to some cool ones. So I want to make sure all of you know where we're at so we can potentially meet up. Uh, Malcolm Fraser is planning on being at the 30th annual Beer and Sweat event on August 18th. This is a huge keg-only competition and homebrew share in Cincinnati, Ohio. On that very same day, Matt Del Fiaco is going to be collecting data uh, at the at Chaos Homebrew Club Summer Brew Brew BQ, I believe is what it's called, the Chaos Summer Brew BQ in Chicago, Illinois. That's their sixth annual event. Uh, and then, of course, Brian and I are going to be up in Yakima, Washington toward the end of September for Hop Harvest and to attend the Fresh Hop Ale Festival on September 29th. I've been interacting with the folks from Varietal Beer Company up there, one of the newer breweries in Yakima. And I'm so excited to get up there and try their beers, drink at Bale Breaker, and just tour all the cool farms and do all that fun hop industry stuff. And then finally, uh, all the way in March of 2019, so a ways away, Denny Kahn and I are going to be leading a couple seminars on experimentation in brewing and beer for the Brew Your Own Boot Camp in Asheville, North Carolina. Tickets go fast for this thing, and I'm not entirely sure when they when they go on sale. But make sure to keep your eyes peeled if you want to if you plan to attend this thing, because uh, like I said, there's only 35 spots in each seminar. They are the same seminar um, on on both days, so you've got 70 chances to get in. Uh, again, that's Asheville, North Carolina, in March of 2019. It's going to be a good time. If you'll be at any of these events, please do let us know. We love hanging out. Uh, we'd love to have a beer or three 
with you. Uh, thanks so much to everybody who's been using our links to do their online shopping. It really does help us out a ton. If you'd be so kind as to lend us a hand, those links can be found at brewlosophy.com support. To be rewarded for your support, you can head over to patreon.com brewlosophy to learn how pledging a small monthly contribution can earn you cool things like unique discounts at yakimavalleyhops.com. They got free shipping on whatever they ordered this month. It was a pretty good one. A chance to win a $50 Love to Brew gift certificate, an invitation to a monthly live Q&A with a special guest. This is easily our most popular pledge level. Uh, coming up next month is Brewlosophy's most experienced BJCP judge, Malcolm Fraser. And for the future, we've got Russian Rivers' Vinny Chalurzo, Seth Klon from Mecca Great Estate Mall, and Dr. Charlie Bamforth from the UC Davis Brewing Program. Awesome people, very, very smart. Uh, all of that just for helping us out a little bit. Uh, you've got until the last day of July to get in on this month's rewards. Learn more about becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash brewlosophy. All right, if you haven't already, please consider doing us a favor by leaving a rating and a review of this show wherever it is you listen to podcasts. We would really, really appreciate it. Feedback this week is brought to you by Brewers Hardware, who specialize in tri-clover compatible sanitary fittings, conical fermenters, kettles, and brew stands. Brewers Hardware offers a variety of unique and hard-to-find items for both the home and craft brewing markets, including high-quality stainless fittings at competitive prices and very fast shipping. Check out the new BCS 482 electric control system, which provides everything needed to fully automate your brewery. Learn more at brewershardware.com, and don't forget to mention Brewlosophy sent you at checkout to receive a free gift. That's brewershardware.com. So we recently released the 2018 General Homebrewer Survey, which if you haven't taken it yet, we'd beg that you do. It can be found at brewlosophy.com. Just scroll down on the front page until you find the article that the link is in. Anyway, this is the third time that we've done this, our goal being to track trends and changes in the hobby. Plus, we're just kind of fascinated by this kind of data. Well, there are a series of questions towards the end of the survey where in the past people could respond with either agree, disagree, or I don't know. Uh, when sharing the results of the first two surveys, one of the most common complaints that we got was that the I don't know option led to skewed results because it was a cop out. <laughs> okay, so I consulted with a few people who are much smarter than I am and heeding their advice, uh, we opted for this year's survey to remove that option and instead go with four choices, more of a continuum from strongly agree, somewhat agree, somewhat disagree, and strongly disagree. Uh, now, Brian, we talked about this. We actually did have a conversation about this for a while. We did, and we, we decided ultimately that you know most, most people tend to choose kind of that, you know, that middle tendency to essentially just yeah cop out and say like, i don't really know or i don't really have much of an opinion when you know if you think about it you do have a i think a lot i, th I think a lot of people have a lot more opinions than they're willing to admit sometimes i, I and well and i think and i get it like this is not i'm not i'm not dissing the few folks who 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 you know asked us why we went with this uh option for this survey um but there was a few i'd say a good 12 to 15 people at least spoke up about the fact that um this this option had changed and they didn't like that there wasn't an i don't know option but the idea behind this really is uh, to gauge, you know, um, where people are kind of swaying. And when there's an I don't know, that, that, that kind of depletes the meaning of that finding. Now, there's an argument to be made for having a neutral, you know, option in there. And maybe next week, you know, we're going to do more consultation or next year. Um, maybe we'll add in another option. But for this one, we really wanted to see where people fall. Now, I understand that some people just didn't answer the questions that they didn't have an opinion on. 
And I suppose that's one way of, uh, you know, one approach for doing this. Um, uh, we, we should have made them required because we really did want people to, to select uh, their opinions. And remember, it's just homebrew. I mean, that's really what we're trying to look at. We, we, we just want to, you know, kind of watch these trends over the years and, and, and do that. But, um, you know, that's sort of the point. To, to gauge where people are at. So anyways, that's why we did that. Uh, that that's that was probably over the last week and a half or so the most feedback that we got because this uh, survey is still out there. Again, it is still open. If you haven't taken it yet, you can find it at brewlosophy.com. Uh, if you have any show feedback, you can send it to feedback at brewlosophy.com or you can leave us a message by calling 951-444-0320. Well, as much as I love a good lager beer, I'm also a pretty big fan of classic American pale ale, which, you know, balances the malt and hop character really well. Well, uh, homebrewer Richard Reed sent me a version he made and calls Blue Dot Pale Ale, which happened to win its category in the first round of the latest national homebrewers competition in the Indianapolis region. One minute beer review with Jersey and Tim. This one's uh, a little dark cloudy. It's a little cloudy and dark, but not dark like black dark. It's no, just, no, no. Just that darker orangey, like, you, you know... When you haven't drank water in a really long time and you pee, that kind of dark. <laughs> what do you think? Damn. Uh, dude, don't like it again. I do. Uh, we're becoming corporate shills. I don't like it. I'm not going to taste it. I'm tired of us liking everything. You will like it. I promise I won't. Do it. Hang on. Well, it has a little, at the end, the aftertaste. Woo. That's good. It's it good. is good. That's good. It's got to be an IPA. And I don't know why I like it. So you finally have said to me, you know what? I think I might like an IPA. And after you said that, every single beer you have, you're like, this is an IPA. <laughs> In psychology circles, there's a word for this. It's like some kind of bias. It's beer bias. It's beer, beer bias. bias. It's beer bias, dude. You got beer bias. I don't mind it for sure. No, but we talked about this. Not an IPA. It might be a, a pale ale. It's probably a pale ale. I do get some juniper. Oh, it's there. Dude, somewhere there's like one farmer in the entire world that makes juniper that's going to listen to this podcast and be like, this guy's going to make me millions. <laughs> I don't even know what juniper is. It's the ugliest thing ever. Where does it grow? In your front yard. Like cilantro? <laughs> You're going to plant juniper in my yard? I like will, I will. Like a terrorist act. You won't even know it. I don't know what juniper is, and I've never known. And you won't know. It's this thing that you've made up. <laughs> I'm with you. I think it's a pale ale. It's good. With some kind of a prefix. It's darker than the pale ales that we've drank yes. before. And it also has a little bit of an element of... I don't know what I'm talking about. I have a lot of that. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> I don't mind it at all. I like it. I think it's really good. Look how much I've drank compared to you. I know. And you're not an IPA guy. You're not. We're changing before our own eyes. I don't like what's happening. I want to go back to Curves Light. Bud Light and Curves Light. That's all we like. I'm going to chase That's it up it. with that. that. Chase it with a Curves Light. <laughs> I, dude, I don't know, man. Could it just be luck or might Jersey and Tim actually be improving their palates? <laughs> I think they're improving. I mean, if you listen to the last dozen or so reviews, they're just they're getting smarter and smarter. They're nailing it, dude. In fact, I, I feel like they might surpass me at one, you know, one, one of these points, calling out that it's not an IPA, but a Pale Ale. That's pretty impressive stuff. And I'm not really, uh, you know, terribly surprised that they like Richard's Blue Dot Pale Ale. It was really nice, moderately bitter, nice piney hop character with a solid malt backbone and super clean fermentation. A total throwback to the early 2000s when I first got into craft beer. Thanks a heap for sending your beer in, Richard. It was a pleasure to drink. Uh, if you have a beer or any other beverage you made that you'd like reviewed by Jersey and Tim, email me, marshall at brewlosophy.com, and we'll get you all set up. All right, when we come back, answers to your questions. When dumping wort-soaked grain in leftover low-gravity wort while cleaning up after a brew day, do you ever wonder what your true efficiency would be if that wort made its way to the kettle instead? 
Using the brew bag, a fabric filter for all mash tuns and brewing methods allows you to capture every last drop of wort. Not only does this increase kettle efficiency, it lowers your grain bill, which saves you money. Throwing wort in the trash is like dumping a 12-pack down the drain and just doesn't make sense. Use the brew bag and leave no wort behind. I've been using these filters for a long time and recommend them to everyone. I never have to worry about a stuck sparge and cleanup is fast and easy. Go grab yourself a brew bag fabric filter at brewinabag.com and be sure to use code TBP17 at checkout to get a discount on your order. As every brewer knows, the best beer requires the best hops, which Yakima Valley Hops provides fresh from the source to brewers around the world, carrying everything from classics like Cascade to modern favorites like Galaxy and Mosaic, as well as other ingredients and gear, Yakima Valley Hops has it all. And don't forget to check out their new podcast, The Late Edition, where the YVH crew goes into depth on our favorite plant with industry experts. Head over to yakimavalleyhops.com now to see all they have to offer and subscribe to The Late Edition wherever it is you listen to podcasts. After a long brew day, the last thing I want to do is waste more time chilling wort. I've tried so many different options, and ultimately I settled on the super efficient immersion chillers made by Jaded Brewing. With the King Cobra and Hydra, I'm able to chill my entire batch of wort from boiling to just a few degrees above groundwater temperature in as little as six minutes. If an immersion chiller is right for your brewery, then do yourself a favor and check out all of the rad options Jaded Brewing has to offer at jadedbrewing.com. And be sure to let them know Brewlosophy sent you. Shopping for brewing supplies online can be a real hassle, which is why we recommend Love to Brew. They've got great prices, super fast shipping, and they carry exclusive products like East Coast Yeast, the Brewers Essentials brand, and their award-winning beer recipe kits. They're also the only place you can pick up your very own Brewlosophy recipe kit. The numbers don't lie. Love to Brew has hundreds of five-star reviews and thousands of brewers are choosing them for their supplies and ingredients each year. Experience the difference at lovetobrew.com. That's love, the number two, brew.com. Brewing beer is easy when you have the right tools for the job, which is exactly what Brewer's Friend aims to do. Arm brewers with everything they need to brew their very best every time. Easy to use for beginners with features to please even the most advanced brewers, Brewer's Friend offers a feature-packed state-of-the-art recipe builder, as well as a full suite of calculators, an active forum, and an informative blog. And they're currently offering a 10% discount to Brewlosophy podcast listeners. Join the community of brewers who have taken advantage of the resources Brewer's Friend has to offer by signing up at brewersfriend.com today and use code PODCAST for a 10% discount. All right, Brian, let's answer some of these questions from people. Yeah, our first one comes from Sam Willis, who wrote to us on Facebook, and he says the following. I've been brewing for about four years, and I'm generally happy with my beer. One thing I've noticed is I tend to get a specific taste in my moderately colored beers like Vienna Lager, Brown Ale, ESB that he doesn't really care for. He says he feels like it's a stringency, but he's not really sure what that tastes like, so he can't say for sure. And he says it's a twang that he doesn't get with his lighter or with his very dark beers. He says he uses tank water and relies on brewing water to determine adjustments. I, he says, I thought it might have been a crystal malt thing, but my Vienna lager doesn't have any in it, and I'm still getting the twang. I tend to drink my beers fairly quickly after kegging, kegging usually two to three weeks from brew day. Am I not letting these beers sit long enough? 
Do you have any experience with this sort of thing? What do you think, Marshall? Uh, so when I hear twang, I think of a couple of things. The first thing that comes to mind, I think uh, pretty obvious for a lot of brewers who started out using extract is, is, is he brewing all grain or is he brewing with extract? The fact that he doesn't get this twang in his lighter beers suggests to me that maybe that's not the culprit uh, because he's, I would imagine he's using the same approach with his lighter beers. Um, so the next thing that comes to mind for me is yeast in suspension. Um, and that is, this is something that we've talked a ton about among the crew is this idea that that when uh, e- even just a little bit of yeast is in suspension, even in beer styles where that's totally appropriate, there's this aspect of it that's kind of twangy. It's kind of sharp. Um, uh, sometimes I get kind of this earthy flavor that comes along with it. But for the most part, the, the main way I can tell that a beer is not quite ready for me, at least to drink, is, th- is this kind of sharp twangy thing that I get from yeast in suspension. I wonder if Sam maybe is is, uh, it, it isn't fining with gelatin or, um, and like he mentioned, maybe just not letting his beer sit long enough, enough if he's not, uh, you know, fining post-fermentation. Uh, those are the things that come to mind for me. Yeah. You know, twang's kind of a hard one to really put your finger on sometimes because, you know, we, we I think back to the astringency episode and a lot of us, what we think is astringency may or may not necessarily be that. So, right. um, you know, I, I think what came to my mind is what's the common theme in your not very light or not very dark beers? Is it a malt, a hop, a yeast that you're using? And what I would do, what I would do is I would go back and I would look at all those recipes and see what's common. So, you know, whether it's a, whether it's, whether it's a, a malt or a yeast or whatnot, but yeah, kind of the yeast in suspension kind of rang out to me because, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about that with those, those hazy IPAs and stuff in suspension. So, right. you know, two to three weeks from brew day is, is pretty quick. You know, you're, if you're fermenting in seven to 10 days and then letting packaging and letting that sit, you know, you get, you know, when you rack, sometimes stuff gets stirred up so it can get reintroduced into suspension. But, um, yeah, I, I, I would go back, look at, look at what you're doing for those beers that is different than you're doing for your very light or very dark beers. And it, and it might be that it's just not showing up in your light beers and it's being hidden in the dark beers. So maybe it's happening on every beer that's darker is another thought that I have. Well, and, and on that point, you know, the fact that it's just the dark beers makes me wonder what type of uh, darker malts he's using or darker grains that he's using in these beers. Um, you know, for my Vienna lager, I, I, I like to use pale chocolate, which has a very, um, noticeable, you know, characteristic to it. I get a real kind of warm, nutty thing from it, even at 2% of the grist. I mean, it's very, very Mm -hmm. noticeable. Uh, you know, you take something like that and you bump it up to 4% of the grist and, and it's going to be even more noticeable. And we also know that darker grains are, are higher in acidity and they can bring that, uh, the acidity of the, of the mash and and ultimately the beer down a little bit. So maybe, maybe you're picking up on that and there needs to be some adjustments made, uh, to, to increase the, uh, you know, the pH of your mash while you're mashing, uh, could be any number of things. I doubt it's astringency. Um, we've done some experiments on astringency, uh, where we've intentionally, you know, uh, tried to pull, uh, tannins out of, out of, um, grains during the mash. And it just doesn't seem to be as easy as we, we thought it would be. Um, so that, that, those are kind of my main things is, is I, I'd probably start with maybe try fining, uh, your beer if you're not doing that, um, with, with something, what, you know, gelatin or clarity firm or biofine clear, something like that. See if you can't strip that yeast out and, and whatever other particulate is in solution, uh, so that you can actually taste the beer. And if you're still getting it after that, uh, you know, I think the first place I would look would be water. Sounds about right to me. Right on. Well, the next question comes from Mark. I think it's Han, uh, H-A-N-N from Sydney, Australia. He wrote this in via email. He says, my question is about a phenomenon I may not 
have observed, uh, though have very little data to support, but have seen mention of it online. This is where a yeast may actually produce more fruity esters when pushed below the recommended temperature range or at the lowest recommended temp uh, when compared to the mid or upper end of the guide. He says that he's made only a few batches of Kolsch but managed to score a 78 out of 100 in the 2017 NSW State Comp here in Australia. That's, uh, I believe that's New South Wales. No idea. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he says, for my last ever, but one comment suggested a little bit too fruity and also a tad too bitter, uh, and that fermentation temperature or yeast type should or could be adjusted. Um, I'm going to, he's got a, a lot more that he added in here, but I want to jump in here. Too fruity on a Kolsch. Brian, um, I mean, what do you think about that? I, I, I make a lot of Kolsch and very rarely do I get fruity at all, despite the fact that it's, you know, in the BJCP description. Yeah, I, I am not a Kolsch expert like yourself. I have made half a dozen or so over my brewing career. Don't um, you dare you know, call me a Kolsch expert. <laughs> the, these are Kolsch. I might be a Kolsch style expert, but I, you know. Sorry, a, a Kolsch style expert. <laughs> the, the couple of things that I, that I think are worth pointing out here in, in his notes is he said he, he pitched a very generous amount. He said 400 milliliters of a compacted fifth generation slurry. And then he also said that he lowered his temperature to try and reduce fruitiness. Um, and the thing that kind of popped out to me that I've, that I've kind of heard before is that when, when you're ten, when you over pitch yeast by extreme amounts, um, there, there have been people that have documented that, um, over pitching can lead to more ester production. And since the taste thresholds for, for esters are very, very low, you know, even if, even if different ones are, are being produced in small amounts, they can combine to give you more of a fruity factor. And I, I took his numbers and I, I pitched them in an assuming, even if you, even if he had, um, you know, a very, a very thin slurry, all he'd need is about 200 milliliters of yeast. And he said he had a thick slurry and he pitched 400 milliliters of yeast. Right. So, you know, he, he did over pitch a lot and I'm, you know, this is, I have not, I've, I've not personally over pitched a beer and noticed this. This is just what I have heard as I, you know, as, as we go through the beer world. Right. Well, and, and you know, when I was studying for the, um, or I guess researching, uh, for the original, you know, Trube experiment that we did, the kettle Trube experiment, I found a research paper that was really interesting and they found that, um, you know, you, by, by fermenting cool, even with the, like, like you said, this over pitch, um, and in a, Trube free environment. Now, I believe I'm getting this right. Uh, that that the you can actually uh, um, encourage more production of isoamyl acetate, which is a fruity ester. Now, one of my biggest issues with the fruity description is that there are a gazillion types of fruit out there. So, what are these judges tasting? Right? Is it banana? Is it banana from isoamyl acetate? Uh, you know, are, you, are they getting like an apple ester, or a pear ester, something like that? Are they getting peachy? There's so many different options it could be. Right. And so I, that's one option, you, you know, generally, generally when you, when you ferment and he said he meant he fermented cooler and generally when you ferment cooler, you get less ester production. Right, right. I, I've never heard of anybody doing that, you know, and I, we, you did that experiment was the first, uh, fermentation temperature experiment where you actually did that with, uh, with, uh, O29. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, the, the, what I think the common wisdom out there is that cooler temperatures with particular yeast strains is going to actually encourage production of more phenols. So that kind of particularly for VG for vinyl glycol, that kind of clovey thing. Whereas, you know, warmer temperatures with certain strains is going to kind of encourage more ester production. So this is kind of an interesting, uh, uh, you know, issue that he's bringing up here. And, and I'm, I'm just going to come out and say that 
Maybe they weren't actually picking up fruity. Um, it could be that they were tasting hops. It could be that their recommendation on fermentation temperature or whatever it was just wasn't accurate. I, I think we always have to have that little nugget of skepticism uh, when it comes to this stuff because, you know, it, it, the judges are, are normal people too. We're, we're, we're making, when I judge, we're, we're making guesses. It's one of my things, you know, when I'm filling out a score sheet in the very rare times that I do judge nowadays, I rarely these days give any any feedback on what one should do uh, to, to, to make the beer fit my taste more. You know what I mean? Right. And, you know, the other, the other thing I think to point out here is he did say that it was a, a fifth generation sure. uh, yeast. And so he said, he said that he was, by the, by the time he got to the fifth generation, the beer was drying out to, to 1.000, which, you know, in my experience with Kolsch doesn't generally dry out that much. So <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if, yeah. I wonder if something happened with his yeast in there. So, yeah, I mean, you know, looking back on the judging, you know, their, their feedback, take it with a grain of salt. And then, you know, when he made the, when he made this second batch, it sounded like he changed his process up. It sounded like he, um, you know, used, used, a, a yeast that was older and over pitch. So those are, the, those are, those are th- some things that could have contributed to this fruitiness. And maybe just because the judges mentioned fruity, you've got fruity on your mind. So, yeah. you know, when you go to taste the spirit, that's what you're expecting. Right. Um, well, and another, you know, Kolsch is, um, the, 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 you know, the, what, what makes a Kolsch, a Kolsch and, and not a, not a Pilsner or whatever is the fact that it's typically a warm fermented uh, lager style, right? Um, now, now I believe 029 and all of those PJ Frost strains are um, actually ale yeasts, uh, very, very clean fermenting ale yeast. But what I might recommend if you're trying to get a really clean character is to try fermenting with something like, um, you know, uh, the Weinstefaner strain or my, my favorite right now is the Augustiner strain, which is, um, I believe that is L17 harvest from Imperial yeast. Try fermenting with that at 65 or 66 degrees and see what you come up with for, for a Kolsch. I don't get much fruity esters out of those fermented warm at all. But I do get that clean, crisp character um, that that you know may very well differ on some degree from a cool fermented virgin. So, uh, you know, lots of options here. Yeah, you're making me thirsty. Let's go on to the next one here. <laughs> All right. So uh, Frank Arismith from San Diego, California, had a question for us. I'm guessing he might be one for competitions here because he wants to know what is the brewlosophy recommended best practice method used to pack and ship beer. Thanks and keep up the good work. Uh, we can spend some time on this one because I, I <laughs> packing think, peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> um, let, let's go. Actually, I want to spend some time on this because I get this question a lot. Uh, you know, we we've got a few guys in the crew who like to compete. Brian, uh, yeah. F- first off, congratulations on taking first place for what was it? American Wild Ale. It was it was third place, but I'd I'd love that first place. Yeah, third uh, third place in uh, the the European Sour Ale. Third place, fruit lambic. Yeah. Right, Matt, Matt Delfiaco got first place with uh, with his cider. With his hard cider. I'm sorry for for mistaking that, Brian. Uh, That's fine. Congratulations on your third place. <laughs> it was still super exciting. I jumped out of my chair and and uh, you know had a great time. But but um, that being said, you have to get that beer to the competition somehow. Uh, but then there are other ways that people want to package and ship their beer as well. Um, it, when we're traveling down to HomebrewCon, a lot of us like to bring beer to share and whatnot. So we're not actually shipping it, but we're we're bringing it with us. So let's go over some of the ways that we've learned how to do that. Uh, Brian, you, you probably do this a bit more than I do. What are some of the processes <laughs> you go through? Well, I, I go through the, the exact same process every time when I go to ship beer, which is different than when I go to bring beer to homebrew con. So we'll start with shipping beer. Um, so the first thing I do is I assume everything's going to get just 
you know, rallied around like the uh, opening scene of Ace Ventura. So I buy, I go out and I buy all new bubble wrap, packing paper, everything. And I get myself a 12 pack box. Like you'd buy you'd usually one that would hold wine or champagne or a bigger bottle. Where do you find and those at? I, I've actually never I, I've had them shipped to me from people who are submitting beers for the Jersey and Tim beer review. But I've but I've never actually purchased those before. Well, this isn't I'm just talking like a regular a regular 12 pack wine box like you'd find at Costco. Oh, I see. So, so something yeah. that, that, that they would ship the wine to Costco in something like that. Yeah, but it's, I mean, they're just doing it on a pallet, so there's no, there's nothing in there except for the bottles. You have to provide all of the other materials. So I go down and I've got a Zinfandel problem. I go down, I deal with that, and I end up with a 12 pack (laughs) that holds wine bottles. And if I'm sending a 12 ounce bottle, I've got some, I've got some space in there. So I start out with that. Generally, uh, shipping companies don't like to see labels. So I actually take it apart and I put it back together inside out. So it's brown on the outside. Um, then I go ahead, I print off my competition labels. I put my competition labels inside of Ziploc, uh, small sandwich Ziploc bags. And so that way, even if something were to break in the, in the, in the package, while it's, while it's in transit, I don't have to worry about my labels getting destroyed because if the beers show up, even if they're intact and they don't have labels on them, they're not gonna be able to do anything with them. Right. So I put those in there, rubber band, never tape because the, the stewards will go crazy. And then I take it and I wrap the t- I wrap it in two layers of bubble wrap and I put a layer of bubble wrap on the bottom of the box. I put each bottle in its own area and then I smash the rest in with uh, packing paper and then duct tape the s- snot out of it. Well, you, you, you kind of skipped one part that I think uh, w- w- one of the questions that I get from a ton of people. And I don't know if Frank was actually uh, curious in, in, in how you actually package your beer, you you keg your beers for the most part. Uh, so so you have to get that beer into a bottle somehow. What is your method for doing that? Because I've had I've had the beers that you bottle and uh, and and bring to different events, and they always taste good. They don't taste oxidized. They don't have any issues. What's your process for that? So I clean and sanitize all my bottles, and I use a, a beer gun, a beer filler, whatever your whatever your weapon of choice is. But one of those ones that looks like uh, you know it's got the long stainless steel rod, and you can grasp it like a like a Blickman beer gun. Or, okay. Uh, I, I think there's a Northern Brewer version of something that they've designed as well. Right. And so I use that um, if it's a beer that I'm sending in that's usually a sour beer. I I generally just fill from the fill that from the bottom, and then just cap on foam, and that seems to do just fine. If it's something that it might be more susceptible to oxygen, oxygen, I will do a full um, CO2 purge and then fill it up and cap it on the foam as well. So, you know, they always, they always mark my beers as being high fill, um, but I do fill it up all the way to make sure that as much oxygen as possible does not make it into the beer. Yeah. So the, the process that I've used, I, I, I don't bottle off of the keg very often anymore these days. I'm, I've sort of written off competing. I'm just, I'm not a very competitive person anyways. Uh, but when I do fill bottles, uh, I do the same thing. I, I give them a nice hot soak in like a, um, I use the Craftmeister Alkaline Brewery Wash and I'll, I'll let them soak in there, make sure they're nice and clean. I leave them, I just leave them in basically a bath of hot, hot, you know, cleaner water for an hour and a half, two hours, rinse them all out with hot water. And then I throw them in a bucket of star sand. And then my, my bottling, um, approach is a little bit different. I've used beer guns and I've used other counter pressure bottle fillers. Uh, but what I've been doing lately is, um, that what we called the brew bottler, but it's, it, it really is an attachment for a, you know, your, your faucet and you, you can either kind of, if you have certain types of faucets like Perlick or, um, you can't use these on your standard chrome uh, uh, faucets because those have an, a vent hole that beer will come squirting out of. 
I don't know how I know that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I've got the inner tap faucets, which are fantastic. They actually have removable nozzles. And so I've, I've made this, I've kind of jury rigged this cool little bottle filler from that. And then, um, you know, th- this thing has a, it's like a stopper on a stainless steel tube that goes down into the, into the bottle and fills from the bottom up and you can control the flow. So you just open up your faucet. You can keep it at your 12 PSI or whatever your serving pressure is. And you control the flow, fo- uh, the flow by compressing the stopper that's in the uh, you know the, the opening of the bottle or whatever vessel you're filling. It's very, very convenient and it works really, really well. Now, I have run into issues with this and, and, I, and this is the thing that I think people who are using this approach need to keep in mind. One, if the inside of your faucet has any sort of bacteria or whatever, which is not, and that, that's common, right? That is not totally uncommon for that to be the case that has a potential to contaminate the beer that ends up in your bottle. And so you have to be really, really careful. If you're sending beers in, I've had this happen two or three times. If you're sending beers in and you know they're going to be sitting around for a while, um, those beers may go bad. And so if they're going in, for example, for NHC, I ran into this issue two years ago. I had a uh, Vienna lager go through to the second round. Well, they, you know, I sent that beer in the week before they were getting judged. They got judged. It scored really well. I think got a 41 or a 42, something like that. Um, and then I had bottles of that very same batch just sitting in my, I had already bottled them off. Bottled them off. They were sitting in my keyser bottle loggering, if you will, for the next three or four weeks. And then I took those and I sent them in. And then they sat around until HomebrewCon happened. And that's when the judging occurred. And of course, on the score sheets that I got back, you know, contaminated, uh, you know, t- it was just they didn't taste good. So I had one one extra bottle left when I got home that I that I opened up. And sure enough, it just it, it was it went bad. Right. So that's something you got to keep in mind. Another thing is the tubing. And this goes for beer guns and all that stuff. Make sure you are uh, cleaning out that tubing when you're done using it, hanging it to dry off really well and then really sanitizing it well before you use it again. I'll get off my make sure you, you don't contaminate your beer soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing is making sure that beer is going to stay clean because you do not know how it's going to be treated by anybody once you drop it off. Exactly. Well, and that's the thing. As much as we want to believe that the people who are receiving these beers uh, are treating them the way that we would hope they would, I promise you that's not always the case. I have been to comp. I've judged in competitions where the beer was sitting out warm for two weeks before, you know, in some in boxes in somebody's garage uh, before judging happened. So keep that in mind. You want to do everything you can to give yourself an edge. So make sure every, your sanitation and cleaning processes are on point. Okay. So when when after I'm done bottling, the way I ship stuff, and I'm going to admit it, man. If the, if the feds come for me. Listen, Uh-oh, here it comes. Famous here it comes. last words. Here it comes. Um, I, I have been known to use uh, every, we'll just say every type of shipping um, option out there. Um, I don't do the whole sending yeast samples thing. I just don't say anything, right? Um, ignorance is bliss in, 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 this, in, the, in the world of shipping beer, in my opinion. Um, usually what I'll do is I'll get a, bo- a regular box and I'll line the bottom with a bunch of leftover. I, I save all of the... Um, all of like the, the, the packing stuff that comes with my Amazon boxes just for this reason. Um, I'll line the bottom with some stuff and then I take each bottle and I put it in a baggie and then I wrap that baggie with as much junk as I can find that I don't need, whether that's leftover plastic bags. Uh, I had a roll of like butcher paper one time. I'd wrap it in that. 
Uh, and then I'd set, I set all the bottles in there as tightly compact as possible so they don't move around and they're all wrapped. So it's soft. And then I cover the top again and I, I, I really compress the box that I've got the bottles in, uh, so that nothing is going to move around. That's my whole goal. Um, in the time that I've been shipping beers, I used to do it a lot more than I do now. I've probably shipped over a hundred beers. I've not had a single, br- uh, you know what? I've had one break and get this. It was sending it to our friend, uh, James Spencer from basic brewing radio. And he, he, he lost one of the experiment beers, unfortunately, only break I've ever had. Um, other than that, it's worked out really well. So that that's how I ship bottles. Um, now th- th- this is a, a I, I knew this was going to be a long response. Um, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about you have a really unique way of bringing beers with you to places that I think we should talk about because I, I really love it. And it seems to work out incredibly well for you. It works out fantastic, and when and I, when I when presentation does not matter at all, I highly recommend what I call the hall bottle. <laughs> the hall and bottle. what I do is, <laughs> Derek Derek Springer uh, coined that one for me because I st- I started bringing all my beers it was, uh, to serve for like the Milk the Funk meetups and for even for the for the seminars that I was giving, I brought all my beers in two liter soda bottles, and so you know if you go down to the supermarket and you buy not not club soda, not not tonic water, you don't want any any other flavors or anything. You get seltzer water, which is just carbonated water. And so the bottle is good for carbonated beverages and bring that home. I pour that into a, uh, an empty five gallon keg just to have tap water or uh, sorry, carbonated water on tap. And then I take that bottle. It gets sanitized. After you remove the cap, it's important. I always remove the little plastic ring that's right there because occasionally you, if you need to recarbonate or put on one of those carbonation caps, it will not screw on all the way if you have that little plastic ring. But then I go ahead and I fill it up with my beer gun, um, cap on the foam. And then I just, I, at that point, I literally just throw it in my luggage in a giant black contractor bag in the <laughs> unlikely event that something leaks. And, uh, you know, this last homebrew con, I think, I think, you know, because you get up, some of these beers are pressurized rather high or carbonated rather high. And then you get up to where there's lower pressure or they've, sorry, they pressurized the plane to lower pressure. Um, you know, I did have a little bit of leakage. Uh, this last time, but maybe a tablespoon that just got spread around the inside of that bag. And, you know, you just get to get to your hotel, rinse them off, go and serve. Um, you know, Matt, Matt over at, um, Matt Bowling in uh, homebrew con- at homebrew con, he just, he loves seeing those two liter plastic bottles show up for seminars because they're just so easy to pour out of. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, and, and I'll admit uh, the first time I saw you do that, I think was two years ago at homebrew con. And, uh, I was convinced that you were going to be, pour- and, and they were new England IPAs. I was convinced you were going to be pouring, oxidized, you know, gross beer. And they tasted as fresh as I would expect you to, you know, as I was expecting them to be off of the keg, you know? And so, uh, the, 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 it works and I've seen more, more and more people doing it. I don't know if they've been inspired by you or not. Um, but, but what is this? I don't actually have a carbonation cap. The reason being I'm all pin lock and I've yet to see a pin lock carbonation cap, but I know that you and Malcolm and a couple other, the guys really swear by these things. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's a, if you think of the post that is on your keg, that is the gas in, essentially it's, you can get a stainless one, or you can get a plastic one. I have a plastic one and the threading on the other side screws on perfectly to a two liter bottle. So, um, you know, I've, I've used these in a bunch of different ways and man, this question's going to go forever. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I can rack a beer into, I can, you can rack a beer into a two liter bottle. You can screw on the carbonation cap and then you can you can push down the little poppet that's on the cap to purge out any oxygen till liquid comes out, then attach it to your CO2 tank and it can, it'll carbonate that way if you don't have your beer carbonated. Um, for competitions, I've also, 
this is gonna this is an interesting interesting idea but i've taken a beer gun connected it to a post that is for a gas disconnect so it can connect to this carb cap and i will do a little tincture of something mix it into that two liter bottle with the beer put the gas cap on hold it up over my head like an iv and then i can fill my bottles that way what that allows you to do is if there's a competition where it says you know you can only have this one entry per style right you know you can you can dose them all a different way if you know we've got a lot of competitions up here and they're all free because there aren't that many people um, <laughs> that are competing in, in local competitions. So, you know, it's kind of fun if they've got, you know, a chocolate challenge or a weird fermentation challenge or something like that. I don't necessarily want to dose a five-gallon batch of beer with that. But, you know, the, the hall bottle allows me to, uh, to do such a thing with a small amount. It's so, uh, to me, it's so, uh, it's kind of just one of those simple genius ideas to be using uh two liter bottles one of the one of the this will be our final thing okay we have been spending a lot of time on this thing i'll tell you what though uh i you know i chose frank uh his question just because we had you know but but i get this question at least two three times a week yeah how are you guys sending bottles in how you know what so that's why we're spending so much time on it um one of the other things that i do is when i'm taking beer uh brewlosophy beers right to to be evaluated whether it's experiment beers or the hop chronicles short and shoddy whatever my favorite hands down my favorite way to get those beers to another place is nalgene bottles i'm dead serious uh they work incredibly well they're basically impermeable to oxygen um and for the short time that they're going to be sitting in that bottle anyways it doesn't really matter um but the one trick the 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 regular caps that come on a nalgene bottle i found at least are not total they, they leak so when that carbonation pressure starts to build up if you have you know if the if the bottle falls on its side you're gonna it's you're gonna spill beer um, they have these neat little like aftermarket caps that you can screw onto the the wide mouth Nalgene bottle that reduces it down to a smaller mouth, uh, you know, little another thing that you can open. Those things are completely watertight, pressure tight, whatever, um, and work incredibly well. They're, it makes pouring out of the Nalgene bottle super easy. And I'll tell you what, they're cheaper than, than uh, you know, they're cheaper than the stainless or, or you know, kind of nicer versions of growlers. Um, and, and I love them. And so I use, that's what I use most of the time when I'm taking beers uh, out to be evaluated. And they come in, they come in different colors too. So, you know, yeah. it's really easy to, to, to discern which one's your red, green, blue when you're doing triangle tests. I mean, they're great. Yeah, they're fantastic. That's exactly what I've got. Two red ones, two green ones, and two blue ones. So I never mix those up. Well, those were some awesome questions. We've got a few more to get to right after this short break. Compact and simple to use with a small footprint for brewing indoors, the Grainfather makes it easy for you to brew professional quality beers at home. The Grainfather is an all-in-one brewing system that lets you brew all-grain beer in a single, compact stainless steel unit. It uses an electric heating element and pump to maintain a constant temperature and to circulate the wort during the mashing and cooling stages. It also comes with a counterflow chiller to reduce chilling times and produce high-quality wort. And now, with the 
addition of their conical fermenter, the Grainfather takes things one step further by offering homebrewers state-of-the-art temperature-controlled fermentation just like commercial breweries use. And with the Grainfather Recipe Creator and Connect app, you can easily design a recipe, sync your brewing system with your phone, and then just sit back and relax as the app takes over and assures that you maintain your scheduled mash temps and boil schedule. Head to grainfather.com to purchase your all-in-one brewing system today and to sign up for their free recipe creator tool. Once more, head on over to grainfather.com. That's grainfather.com and get started today. Hi, I'm Stephen Leach, creator of Brow Supply Brewing Systems, here to tell you about our latest Unibrow Brewing System. Modeled after the brew-in-a-bag method, the Unibrow uses the same kettle for both mashing and boiling, replacing the fabric bag with a stainless basket that can hold up to 20 pounds of grain. A heating element is run by an electric controller that allows for the maintenance of specific mash temperatures and makes mashing easier than ever. Each Unibrow is shipped with a counterflow chiller and the parts required to brew a batch of beer. We're really proud of the Unibrow, and we know you'll love it as much as we do. Go check it out at BrowSupply.com and sign up for our email list to receive special deals in your inbox. Have you ever thought about adding a port to your kettle but held off because you didn't feel like drilling into your gear or sending it off to have someone else do it? From the makers of the super fast counterflow chiller, the Exchillerator, comes the Hangover. The easiest way to add extra ports to your kettle as well as countless other options. Mount a faucet to your keg for easy portable pouring. Set up the perfect whirlpool arm. Hold a heating element in place. All of this and so much more without permanently modifying your gear. Manufactured right here in the United States, The Hangover offers brewers too many convenient solutions to list here. So head over to Accelerator.com today to see what The Hangover can do for you. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supplies, the largest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. They offer exclusive malts, yeast, and more from local artisans, as well as award-winning recipe kits. They also sell professional brewing gear and cask equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Most ingredients are available by the ounce, plus Atlantic Brew Supply has an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew. Orders are processed same day, and two-day shipping is guaranteed for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order using promo code BrewPod. That's B-R-U-P-O-D at AtlanticBrewSupply.com. Okie dokie, jumping right back into it. We've got a question from user Bumnub on Reddit. <laughs> I always wonder where people come up with these usernames. Mine is too simple. Uh, all right, he asked this. Have you ever considered brewing professionally or do you prefer the homebrew scale and why? Take it away, Brian. Oh, man. So <laughs> I've, I've gone back and forth. You give me two beers and I'll tell you my entire plan for how I'm going to open a professional brewery someday. And the next morning, <laughs> I'll tell you about how I'm going to stay a homebrewer the rest of my life. Um, you know, I go back and forth. There's, there's, there's a lot that I, there's a lot of, I get a lot of satisfaction out of sharing beer with other people. You know, we just touched on, I'm always bringing beer to homebrew con and that sort of thing. I load suitcases up cause I just, I love getting feedback. I love sharing what I'm doing. Yeah. And for me, that would be, that would be the reason to go professionally is to be able to share it with more people. Right. Um, you know, I've gone back and forth. I, I, I think I like the romantic. I like a lot of people. I like the romantic idea of owning a brewery yeah. and and walking in, owning my own place, 
you know, serving, serving to all these people, making new connections, that sort of thing. Um, I don't, having worked in a brewery before, I've, I've seen kind of the behind the scenes action and I can't say I want to be like dealing with, you know, bottling lines or doing packaging. Cleaning out mash bre- tons. Cleaning out <laughs> yeah. mash tons or, or brewing six days of the week. I mean, you know, I've done plenty of pro-am brews when I go there. They're like, do you want to do everything? I was like, no, I just kind of want to, you know, let's design a recipe and I'll watch you guys do it and drink some beer. <laughs> yeah, they're like, great. Thing, so. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I there is that romantic idea of wanting to do it and share it with others. And I've got a couple of other passions that I kind of want to tie into that as well. And so I... I kind of been loosely putting together some ideas over the last several years. If I do it, I'll probably wait till my kids are in school because you know right now my profession is is a full time father, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ditch them to go do that. Right. Um, but you know I lo- I also love doing what I do on the homebrew scale because I can do anything I want to. I don't have to cater to anybody, and if something goes wrong, I'm not. You know, there's no fi- huge financial loss for me at this point. Yeah, it's easy enough to ditch. Well, this is a it, this is a really loaded question uh, for me um, right right now. Just just I think just because of brewlosophy and the opportunities, and uh, you know, it, the, the opportunity you get heard and, and people start talking to you. I've had offers from uh, probably four four or five different folks around the U.S. Or I got one international offer to to kind of join in on something. And I've turned most of them down, which I think, you know, right off the bat kind of shows where my alliance or my allegiance really is. And it's with this homebrewing thing. But, um, you know, the, the, I think there's practical things when it, and I'm speaking for myself. I, I, I know there are people out there who are in completely different life situations. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say like, be all sanctimonious about this and, and, and people should think like me. Um, but just for me, Um, the, the, the first practical thing is that I have a career already and, and it, and it's, you know, it pays pretty well. It's, it's what I do for a living. It's allowed me to homebrew and to build this brewlosophy thing the way that I have. If I were to go into brewing in the traditional sense, right? If I were to partner with somebody and be the brewer and start this small craft brewery, uh, which I love that other people do, it would mean sacrificing this very secure, um, you know, job that I've already got. I may not love it, but, but it, but it does the trick and, and it's allowing me to live a pretty decent life while also doing this fun stuff with home brewing. And, and, uh, you know, I, I know that we have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, craft brewers out there who listen to the show and, and read the website as well. So there's that piece of it for me, the pr- practicalities of, of, of basically financial security. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. I, I, I can relate to that as well too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a big thing that a lot of, you know, and I, and I appreciate this. A lot of people who jump into professional brewing, um, at least the folks that I know are kind of in these in between jobs. Maybe it's not, they don't view it as a career and that, you know, professional brewing for them is the, is the next step and, and will provide them more of that. Hopefully at least, uh, that's financial security. So I get that. Um, but for me, I would ha- I'd have to leave a profession that I went to school for 10 years for and got a PhD for and all this stuff. Um, so that's a pretty big leap. doesn't mean I wouldn't totally do it, though. Um, the other thing, sort of you kind of hit on it a little bit, Brian, is that I have no interest in actually being a professional brewer. I love running businesses. I, I you know, I've built Brewlosophy without... It took a lot of effort. We've done a lot of stuff. We've had a lot of fun with it. But but the part that I like is the it's the kind of the excitement of seeing where I can take something. And I've got another small business that's more you know psychology related. 
Um, and it, that, that, that is fun for me. I like kind of being behind the scenes and, and, uh, and kind of tweaking that side of things. So I wouldn't want to be a brewer, but, but, um, there's been a little bit of talk with that I've had with some people lately about maybe partnering together on something that really does embody the brewlosophy ethos. So very experimentally focused, um, very, very scientific, um, really more interactive brewing. That's kind of the way I, I look at what, if I ever, I were to do anything professionally, it would be to, to be, have it be very, very interactive with whoever was drinking the beer it was that we were brewing. So um, I'm open to those ideas. I'll talk about that stuff. But at this point, I, I, you know, I'm not going into professional brewing. I'm not going to be a professional brewer. And as soon as anything happens, if, if ever it does, I'll be sure to announce it like crazy. I'm sure people <laughs> would expect that <laughs> uh, because we want to get people out. And, and really, ultimately, the, uh, you know, the biggest thing for me it's the same exact thing with homebrewing and I, and, and people are cynical and I get that, but, but I'm dead serious. The number one reason I think all of us at Brewlosophy do continue doing this thing that we do. None of us are getting rich off this, right? We've all got our careers. We've all got our other f- sources of income. The number reason, number one reason we all do this is because we love the hobby. We love the people who are in the hobby and hanging out with folks and going to things like homebrew con. And yeah, it's opened up some avenues for us and that's pretty neat. Um, but, but really I just, I just love hanging out and drinking beer. You know, that's what it's all about for me. Yeah. I, I think that's the nail on the head. And, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, one of the things that I've kind of done is I, I really like to be involved with a lot of the local breweries as much as I can and just bounce ideas off. We go back and forth. Uh, I get ideas from them. They get ideas from me. And I think, you know, the ultimate, the ultimate cool job would be kind of like being a brewery consultant where you just, you can come in and you can see what other people are doing. You can work with them on ways to change or improve or, right. you know, do sorts of things with breweries. And, you know, I've, I've, dabble a little bit in that sort of thing. Um, it's hard to come to a professional brewery and be like, Hey, I'm a home brewer. You want some help? But <laughs> yeah, they uh, hate that. <laughs> oh yeah, they totally do. But at the same time, it's like, there are ways of approaching it and being like, Hey, you know, you know, I've, I've been brewing New England IPAs for the last six years and I've done, you know, umpteen iterations and these are the things I've learned. Right. Feel free to use them. I think, I think being a brewery consultant would be a, be a, an awesome way to have all of the fun without having to shovel all of the mash ton. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. See what you. I did there? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I liked it. That was very, very clever. I, I actually think that's exactly what folks like uh, John Palmer and Gordon Strong, and I think even Randy Mosher. That's really what they're doing. They consult with a couple of breweries that they're really involved with, and and it sounds great. Now I know not to speak, you know, for for everyone on the crew, but I'm pretty sure uh, like Matt Del Fiaco and uh, Malcolm Fraser both would would jump at the opportunity uh, to 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 you know go full time into into uh, professional brewing if they, if they could, you know, and of course it would have to balance, you know, again, financially that would be a responsible move, but, uh, definitely, I, you know, I think all of us kind of have some interest in the idea, you know, it, it, it is very romantic, like you said, Brian, uh, but, but for the most part, I think we're happy kind of with what we're doing. And to be honest with you, Brewlosophy is consuming so much of my time now that it's almost like a second job. So, um, and I kind of can, I kind of view it that way that that's my in, in the brewing world. And, uh, it's been a lot of fun. So let's move on to the next question. Definitely. All right. We got an email from Jarrett who said, Hey, in episode 24, the impact of post-fermentation oxidation gave me some ideas on how to reduce oxidation when transferring beer from the fermenter to the keg. So he, he's very concerned about, he says he's concerned about oxidation when he does, when he is dry hopping. And right. so he says currently he opens the top of his conical, tosses in his hops in a nylon bag. Do you have any suggestions on how to reduce oxygen contact during this process? Adding CO2 back to the top of the fermenter is more challenging than adding to a keg. 
Brian, I think this is a question beautifully suited for you, Mr. NEIPA Brewer. <laughs> um, as far as adding hops, I have not found the ultimate way to add hops without introducing any oxygen whatsoever at all on the homebrew level. I, I, so this is this is what I think. Pe- people talk about um, biotransformation dry hopping and adding hops at, at high croissant or even before. I, you know, we've had actually good luck adding hops right at yeast pitch and just letting them sit in there. And that's your dry hop charge, you know, until you until you keg it up. But it does seem like that is probably uh, the most effective way of, of reducing, significantly reducing or even eliminating the introduction of, of uh, you know, oxidation during and or after fermentation uh, while dry hopping. Yeah, there's no way that I found to add them without introducing oxygen. So that being said, you can introduce them at a stage where that oxygen might not be as bad of a thing as, you know, if you, if you were to, if you were to add, if you add hops during when you're putting your beer in your keg, you're introducing some oxygen at a point at which nothing's really going to happen with it. Right. If you add it in high croissant or initially, some of that has the potential to get purged out. So assuming you're willing to do that, that's what I would do is, you know, when you're, you know, I, I don't really buy in as much to the whole biotransformation um, experience as, as some people do. And so I tend to add my hops once the first initial little bit of fermentation has completed. Although the last time that I, the last time I did a New England IPA, I added them right when I added my yeast. So, well, um, and, and we've, we've done an experiment comparing, uh, I believe it was biotransformation dry hop. So at high croissant to, um, you know, dry hopping at yeast pitch and, uh, you know, that's something that I've messed around with kind of an accidental uh, a mess up when I was brewing with a buddy of mine and all of the hop character I expected was there. And, and part of me wondered if maybe it wasn't even more more present because of the fact that there there was reduced potential for reduced oxidation at the very least. I don't make very many dry hopped beers. Um, I can tell you right now that when I do, when, when I'm adding those dry hops at the more kind of the, the traditional time, right, like post fermentation, I'm pretty sure that I'm picking up quite a bit of oxygen. You know, I'm, I'm, I put my dry hops in kind of this stainless sleeve, the stainless mesh sleeve, and then I drop them into my, my brew bucket. And, uh, I, I, you know, there's really no way that there's not going to be some oxygen pickup there. And, um, I, you know, for me, my, 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 when I'm making dry hop beers at this point, I'm tossing those dry hops in right at yeast pitch. I, the, the, the data seems to back up that that works. And so I, I just figure why not reduce the risk? Yeah. So, yeah, along similar lines, um, I use I use a similar uh, mesh contraption when I when I do my dry hopping as well, and I like to do I like to do a double dry hop um, just because I, I I like the idea of the layers of flavors, and I'm not sure whether it actually is, but I I just like it. Yeah. Um, and so what I do is I do I do a full keg purge, so I I fill my keg up to the brim with star sand. And then I push it all the way out into another keg and you kind of just repeat the cycle. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really important. A lot of people that do dry hop in the keg, they will shorten their dip tube and put sort of screens on and that sort of thing. If you shorten your dip tube and you do this method, you're going to end up with star sand on the bottom. Yep. So I do, <laughs> I do make sure that it's, that if I am going to do this, do this method that I have, I have a dip tube that's going to reach all the way to the bottom of the keg. That's, that's really important. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what I do is I do a, a, full, a full keg purge. I remove everything. And then I take that canister of dry, I take my dry hops. I put them in my canister. I quickly open the lid, drop that in um, with, and you know, there is going to be some oxygen introduced, but at that point I'm starting from ground zero. So whatever's going in there is just what I've added right. from that canister. And then I do a full purge on top of that as well. Yeah. A lot of purging there. <laughs> yeah. A lot of purging, but yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, if, 
And you know, the question is trying to reduce, trying to reduce ox oxidation. And if I am trying to do that, that's what I do. Now, what do I do normally? I screw them into, I screw them into that canister. I throw it in my fermenter most of the, when it's done most of the way. And then I do that again, either at the end of fermentation or when I'm putting them in the keg. Yeah. 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 Hopefully that answers your question. Uh, Jarrett, um, I, I think we're all concerned with oxidation, particularly of hoppy beers and most specifically, uh, New England IPA. Um, I'm, I'm certainly a believer these days when I, I can't say that I necessarily bought into it, you know, just a couple, couple years ago. So, all right. Our next question comes from, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to slaughter this. I know it, but it's German Segura from Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. He wrote this in via email uh, and he says, I really enjoy, enjoy the content of Brewlosophy. Thank you so much, German. Uh, he says, I want to ask your opinion about the six row malt. Is it possible to brew a decent beer using this malt or will it taste like a commercial adjunct beer? I'm asking because here in Mexico, we don't have local local two-row malt, but a lot of six-row. Have you ever thought about comparing beers brewed with either two-row or six-row base malt? Well, well, well. I can tell you that we have done a comparison. I can tell you I did not do it. Jake would be the person <laughs> to, to describe what he experienced from that. I personally have only used six-row twice. So like you did with the last question, I'm going to point this one right back to you, Marshall. Well, you know, I've never used six-row at all. So you've actually got more oh. experience with it than I do. But um, but but I what I can say is that um, I'm almost certain that the two-row versus six-row experiment came back significant. So people were able to reliably tell the, the two apart. Um, yeah. I don't think there was a huge difference in terms of preference. And the, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, the six row, the, the, the main differences were that the six row beer had slightly less conversion, which is to be expected. Right. That's that's part of the reason a lot of craft brewers are using two row malt. Um, and, and then uh, and then Jake described it as having kind of more of a, a an earthy kind of I, I've got to air quote this. I don't want people to misinterpret kind of like a dirty Flavor. He said a dirty character. Yeah, he yeah. said he's he, he yeah. And the, what was interesting was the taster is it was split right down the middle. Right, right. Um, Jake said he got more of a, a sweeter, richer flavor out of the two row, and yeah, that that six row had almost more of a, a dirtier character. Now that now that's you know he he used I believe he used what ninety or hundred percent of the grist as being exactly two row, six row. Exactly. Well, that so. and and as far when, when I talked to him, I kind of I kind of you know like nailed him on this. What do you mean by dirty? He he described it to me as being husky. So you know you you, you the way I can um, kind of envision it tasting based on the way he explained it to me is kind just more grainy, having that more kind of earthy grainy character to it, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. He didn't. He told me he liked the beer, just that they were different. Um, you know, um, I, I think if if all you've got is six row available, use it. It's especially if you're enjoying the beers that you're making uh, and you can't get two row, that's totally fine. I'd use it in a heartbeat. And, uh, you know, I guess my question would be it, where are your character malts coming from? Are those made from the same six row base? Um, you know, but, but in the end, I think you're going to be okay with it. And again, like you said, Brian, you know, there's this, this, the fact that, you know, Jake brewed those uh, beers using almost a hundred percent, either two row or six row base malt. When you start to reduce that and balance them out with other character malts, you know, who knows if that difference is going to be right. I mean, if he's if he's if our if if German's looking to make a hundred percent six row pilsner, it's probably not. I'm guessing you know based on our 
based on our experience, our experiment, it's probably not going to come out exactly the same as, as say a, a two row version of that. But you know, if you're, if you're making beers where you're using uh, specialty malts and those sorts of things, and you you know, six row has such high diastatic power compared to two row, you know, you could be using adjuncts to kind of smooth out that huskiness and then totally. adding in, adding in some, some caramel, some crystal malts, some, some darker malts making all, you can make a variety of different beers based on that. You might not be able to make the most, you know, most genuine German Pilsner or Czech Pils or something like that. But right. I'm sure, I'm sure where there's a will, there's a way, you know, exactly. I mean, you can work, you can work with what you have. And you know, if, if six rows local use that, and I'm sure at some point you might be able to come across some two row and, and fill that Pilsner, yeah. Pilsner craving. Well, and to answer this question, if it's going to taste like a commercial adjunct beer, I don't think so. Um, and, and that's only because commercial adjunct beers, ha- you know, have a bunch of adjunct in them. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're using six row the same way, most of us use two row pale malts and whatnot, I, I think you're going to be good. And real quick, before we move to the next question, realizing that, uh, that, uh, you know, Mr. Segura is from Puerto Vallarta. It's probably Herman is his name. So again, oh. yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I, I apologize uh, for saying that inappropriately if we did, uh, but let's, let's go ahead and move on to the next question. <laughs> Our next question comes in from an email from Jared Bradley. He's from seven mile Ohio. And he says, Hey, given the, resor- given the results of the short and shoddy brews and the amount of non-significant results from your experiments, if you were to set out to make a bad beer intentionally, <laughs> what would you do? Even in, he says, even though a lot of things come back with significant differences, he's never meant, we, we usually never say anything about the beers being bad. Usually it's just that they're different. Right. And he says he's brewed some bad beers. <laughs> and he, I guess, I think what he's trying to look at is like, what is it? Not you would go to take, make a bad beer, but like what sorts of things do make bad beers? Here's what I would do. Um, uh, it, it's really easy. <laughs> First off, I would, um, I, would, I would use chlorinated water from a green water hose. That would be the first thing that I would do. I wouldn't adjust it at all. Um, I, it, actually, in fact, I would go try to, I'd go down the street to where I know that uh, some folks get water that has chloramine. I think it's probably about 40 miles south of me. Uh, they they use chloramine in their water. Thankfully, where I live in Fresno, they don't. Um, so I'd use chloramine, high chloramine, high chlorine water. First off, uh, run through a green water hose that's been sitting out in the sun for three or four years. Now that that's very important because <laughs> that, that right there, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's well, now we're getting sort of bad. We're at like forty percent bad. Um, and then when I, I I would mash for you know maybe. 10 or 15 minutes. Um, so, so I'm not getting totally full conversion. I wouldn't boil it. I would just take that wort from the mash and put it right into an unsanitized, uh, carboy that I never even washed after the last batch. I just left it sitting out for a while. Um, and then whatever natural yeast was in there, I would just let have its way with the beer that, that really, the point I'm trying to make is water, <laughs> water and sanitation are, are, in my opinion, the two primary culprits for bad beer, bad water and poor sanitation practices. I know people who swear that their sanitation is great and then I watch them brew and I cringe the entire time. And that I honestly think there's a personality thing to this. Some of us are just nuts. Um, that's not to say that I'm as nutty as they come. I know people who are sanitizing all their hot side stuff. Fine, you know. Um, but but for me, it really boils down to uh, uh, sanitation, good cleaning and sanitation practices, and 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 uh, water chemistry, water quality. Yeah, I that I <laughs> I can't get I, that visual is just great. You know, the only the only time I actually did a beer that was that where I where I did most of the stuff right 
Well, actually, no, I didn't really. I used pond water one time, and uh, that was that was horrible. It was actually just for a demonstration. I needed to, I, I had to make a demonstration beer for this video crew. Long story. Anyhow, so I, <laughs> I used, I we canoed out and picked up a bucket of pond water. We and everything else we did fine, but man, that was it. Just tasted like pond water. So I would agree with you on pond water. I would agree with you on no sanitation. Um, you know, and, and maybe, maybe hit it with some oxygen when you, uh, before you put it in the keg, I think, I think oxidation oh, there you tends go. to, yeah. tends to be a big one or, you know, and just use, if you were to use crummy moldy ingredients, that sort of thing. But yeah, yeah I think, I think water, water, sanitation and, um, lack of oxygen, uh, on the po- post fermentation side, those, those seem to be the biggest things that I, I think. That I personally think make would make bad beer is yeah. to to ignore all of those things. Yeah, and I, I think there are recipe factors we can look at too. Um, another issue, and, and this one just came up as well for me, is when um, there is a very very peculiar flavor that I get when a beer has been sitting in a keg. When I, let's say I kegged a beer warm, and so yeast is still falling out, and then I leave that beer alone for a long time before I pull the yeast off, right? So I, I carbonate it, whatever, I walk away for a couple of months, forget about it, and then I, and then I start drinking off of it. Even once I, I, I get all that sludge out, that beer has this kind of rubbery, I call it flubber, but it's kind of this like rubbery, um, earthy, just not very good characteristic that that I seem to be kind of sensitive to, I guess. Um, and I think that's caused by perhaps autolysis, you, you know, yeast dying um, or something like that. Um, the, I, I actually, uh, the, the last beer that I had this in was a uh, the experiment beer that I did comparing fresh yeast to yeast used to ferment a very large uh, barley wine, right? So I fermented the same wort with with either fresh or barley wine yeast, and uh, I, I I was kind of picking that up in the in the uh, the, the repitched batch, and so um, that that's what kind of indicates to me that it may be a yeast related issue. But the beer was still fine; it wasn't contaminated. Uh, as for me, most of the beers that I've dumped in my life have have been because of contamination. It's barely a handful, maybe five or six beers altogether. Um, otherwise, if I'm dumping them, it's just because I've got another beer that I want to take its place, and I'm I'm just not that married to to the beers that I make. Yeah, I mean the only the only beers I tend to dump are the sour beers, and I just I don't know. I'm a real I'm very particular about the uh, the beers that I drink and serve when it comes to sour beer. Um, you know, because a lot I think there's I think part of it's I'm just biased in the fact that I've had so many poor sour beers on the commercial <laughs> yeah. market that you know I mean you make a ten barrel batch of beer and nobody wants to dump that but, right um, sour sour beers are are unpredictable sometimes and yeah. so um, you know it wasn't intentional but it, it definitely it definitely just was a beer that didn't didn't turn out right so. yeah best way to ruin a sour beer is, is uh, start serving it before it's actually sour I can't stand that. It would, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're honestly like, oh, yeah, I made this sour beer. It's been sitting in it for a year and a half in a glass carboy or whatever. And it's just there's no acid to it whatsoever. I, anyways. All right. <laughs> Next question. Our final question comes from Ruben Rios from, oh, boy, uh, Malage, Malage, Spain. <laughs> uh, he sent this in via email. He says, I know there have been some experiments showing non-significance on using different mash temperatures. But typically, when I measure the temperature of my mash, I get completely different values depending on how deep I dig my thermometer into the grain bed. Also, uh, when I recirculate my wort, the temperature is different. He says that his kettle has dead space where there's no wort, uh, or there, where there's wort but no grain. Uh, so I have been wondering for a while whether my wort or the grain bed temperature is the one I should be taking into account, or maybe the average between the two values. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it depends. My first thing is like, 
what is the difference? Are we talking a difference of 20 degrees, a difference of two degrees? Yeah. Because if, if, it, if it's a difference of a degree or two, I wouldn't even... I wouldn't even bother thinking about that any longer. Yeah. Um, you know, it sounds like he's got one of those recirculating, recirculating systems. Um, and what I, what I do when I take my temperature is I'm constantly stirring yeah. and I use one of those thermopens that updates itself every other second. And so as I'm stirring, I just kind of see what that average is. It also allows for the mat mash to become more homogenous. Um, and you know, I check to see if that temperature is swinging all over the place. And usually by the time I'm stirring for 10 or 15 seconds, it's, it's pretty dialed in and I just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you and I do the same. I was going to say stirring and then taking the temperature immediately after stirring. I know there's a lot of, uh, yeah, a few people out there who, who aren't big fans of, of spending, you know, dropping the coin that it costs uh, to get a really high speed, very accurate thermometer, like a thermopen. Um, I love mine um, because of the fact that, that I get very accurate readings. And the way I take my mash temperature readings is I, I'm combining that, that, uh, the, the grist with the water. And as soon as I pull that whisk out, my ginormous 24-inch whisk, as soon as I pull it out, I'm measuring the temperature. And if it lines up with what I expected it to line up with uh, based on Beersmith, then I, then I call it good, you know, and I, I put the cover on, I leave it alone. I come back, I stir it every 10, 15 minutes, really, really briefly just to kind of get things moving around uh, and to ensure that, 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 that stratification hasn't happened, you know, or, or that I'm kind of correcting for it. Um, but other than that, uh, you know, I, I, I guess the average I, I would, would be my response. Um, I, just take your mash temperature readings like that. And uh, right after you, you know, right after you stir everything together and I think you're good to go. Yeah, sounds good. And one more pitch for the Thermapen. I mean, it is one of the most versatile homebrew tools out there. I mean, I'm not getting any money from them, but if, <laughs> if, you've, if you've got, if, you've, if you're looking for a Christmas present, th put a Thermapen on your list. It's, yeah. it's great. Yeah, I love it too. And I think I think most of us use it for more than just brewing as well. I agree with you. It's a, it's a great piece of gear and yeah, a little costly, but but it uh, pays for itself over time. So, well, that's all the time we've got for this show. Thanks to everyone who submitted questions. I hope our responses suffice. Uh, if you have any questions you'd like answered in an upcoming episode, don't hesitate to let us know. You can submit them via email at feedback at brewlosophy.com or on social media. We're active on most of the places out there, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just make sure to drop a note that the question is intended for Brew and A. That way we'll get it added to the list. Uh, we've got something super fun coming up for you next week, a beer review special, if you will, recorded live from the floor of HomebrewCon 2018. It's going to be a good one. Don't forget to head over to brewlosophy.com to read about all of our experimental antics. The Brewlosophy podcast is made possible by the generous support of our sponsors, as well as all of our rad listeners. We seriously could not do this without you. Cheers to everyone who has subscribed and left a review of our show. It makes a huge difference. If you haven't yet, please consider doing so. Head over to brewlosophy.com support to view a list of ways you can easily help us to continue producing this podcast. If you want a reward for your support, visit patreon.com brewlosophy. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Brewlosophy podcast. Until then, think beer. Start off the morning with some hot tea, lemon and honey, cause it soothes my bro. Put some herb in the bowl, yeah, it's homegrown. Ain't gotta go through the middle man no.